I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. As has often been advised, yet rarely heeded, elections have consequences. Winston Churchill, way back in 1936, said, We are entering a period of consequences. Are we ever? When Americans vote, they rarely think about the Supreme Court. Yet the power they have over nearly every aspect of the rights we have taken for so long, uh, taken for granted, can hardly be overstate. So to paraphrase Al Jolson in 1927, you ain't seen nothing yet. The Supreme Court session always begins the first Monday in October, and here is where the election of Donald Trump and his enablers in the Senate is about to reveal enormous consequences on the rights that we have so long taken for granted. On reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, civil rights, gun laws, and perhaps other aspects of our daily lives. With us today to discuss his article in The Nation titled SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS is back in session and cruelty is on the docket. Our guest is Ellie Mistel, who is executive editor of Above the Law, a website that covers the legal industry and is a contributing writer for The Nation, as well as the legal editor of WNYC's More Perfect. He's written editorials for the New York Daily News and the New York Times. He's appeared on both MSNBC and Fox News without having to lie about his politics to either news organization. Mistel writes of the new court, it will be pro-gun and pro-death. It will be pro-Trump to the point of shamefulness. Yikes. Ellie Mistel, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, thanks for having me on, Bert. Donald Trump has flaunted his love for cruelty in so many ways. Racist treatment of dark-skinned immigrants, separating families and caging children, fomenting and cheering on domestic political violence, abandoning our Kurdish allies to the horror of Erdogan's war machine. The list of cruelty goes on and on and on. But the Supreme Court? I mean, theoretically, they're supposed to head up the third co-equal branch of government, the judicial branch, being a check on the constitutionality of actions by the other branches, the executive and the legislative. But since the president appoints and the Senate confirms, the balance of the court has shifted far to the right. Ellie Mistel writes, as the term begins, the conservatives are sharpening their knives and L. LGBTQ rights, abortion, and gun control are all on the chopping block. To be honest, I think Mistel is being too kind, calling them conservative, when, in my opinion, right-wing better describes, but that's a minor point. Again, thanks, thanks for being with us. It does seem clear that the shift to the right came with Mitch McConnell, who, as you say, didn't steal a seat on the court for nothing. Augmented by the seating of Brett Kavanaugh more recently... As the new session begins, you write, this year the court is looking at a docket largely shaped by Kavanaugh's politics. He's the new kid on the block. What do you mean by that? How is it shaped by Kavanaugh's politics? People have to understand how the court 
takes cases in the first place, right? So, like, you know, you, you, you go to court, you have a district judge ruling, that's the, that's the federal trial court, you appeal it to the Court of Appeals, um, and then you appeal to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court hears, I mean, sees, gets across their desk, um, about 7,000 appeals a year, but they only take 100 to 150 actual cases, right? So most of the time, the vast majority of cases, the court just punts. They're like, oh, no, whatever the circuit court ruled, that's what's going to stand. It's only about 100 cases um, that the court actually will look at. And how do they look at those cases? Well, it only takes four votes um, from the Supreme Court for the court to decide to hear a case, right? Um, not five, and you know, it's a nine-justice court, right? So it doesn't take five, it doesn't take a majority, it doesn't take a unanimous vote, it only takes four. Well, the hard conservative bloc has had three votes for a while, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Justice Alito, um, Justice Thomas, and formerly Justice Scalia, then replaced by Justice Gorsuch. That's all, those three were always going to vote for the hardest kind of uh, right-leaning cases to take. Um, But John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, generally tries to keep the court out of hot-button political issues. And Anthony Kennedy, um, the former justice on the Supreme Court, he was he was truly he was a centrist. You know, I didn't I didn't agree with him on some things, and I agreed with him on other things, and that's that's kind of what happens when you're a centrist, right? Um, and so he also kind of didn't want to take some of the most kind of crazy conservative um, pet cases. Um, but when you replace Kennedy with Kavanaugh. Um, as Mitch McConnell successfully did, um, then you have that critical fourth vote to take the kind of very worst um, conservative, arch-conservative hobby horse cases. Um, And that's what we're seeing with the docket. Now, to be fair, those votes uh, on whether or not to grant cert, whether or not to hear a case, those votes are not usually made public. So I am guesstimating a bit here. Um, but it's but when you look at this docket versus last year's docket versus two years ago's docket, you I think you can truly see um, pretty clearly where the Kavanaugh effect comes in. These cases, some of the ones that the court will be deciding this year, the court did not have to take and did not have to weigh in on. They've chosen to weigh in on because now they have four votes um, to do it. John Roberts is still chief justice and. I always thought of him up until recently as pretty far to the right. But you say what is on the docket will test Roberts and that while Roberts will be critical to the decisions that are made by the Supreme Court, it's no longer really his court. He's just along for the ride. That's that's quite an assessment. Who So who is driving it if not uh, John Roberts? It's it's the conservative block here, right? I mean, you, you said it right. John Roberts is no centrist. I, uh, he has gaslit the media into thinking that he's a centrist or thinking that he is some kind of institutionalist. He is not. John Roberts, his, his strength, his, his genius, um, depending on your point of view, is that he really sees how to bend the law to the Republican agenda as much as it can go without totally breaking um, now, granted, Roberts does seem to care about the law breaking in a way that Clarence Thomas does not. Um, so he is to the left of that arch-conservative block um, for that reason. But he is no centrist. He is, he is absolutely a dyed-in-the-wool um, Republican. So, so his, his viewpoints here are going to generally align with 
the arch-conservative block. But that doesn't mean that he would have kind of independently decided to, yeah, to take some of these cases. I think a great example is the DACA case that's, that's in front of the Supreme Court. So uh, as many people know, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program was instituted by executive order by President Obama. It allowed dreamers, people who were brought to this country illegally by their parents when they were kind of too young to object and have only you know, functionally known America as their home country. It allows these people to have a pathway to citizenship that previously they did not. Um, it helps about 800,000 people. It's you know, I would argue it's one of Obama's greatest and most important um, um, laws. Uh, obviously, the conservatives have been trying to to get rid of that since Obama um, um, put it into action. Um, this, the case that we will see at the Supreme Court this term about DACA did not have to be here. Mm. Um, there were three lower court challenges to Trump the Trump administration's decision to just just overrule DACA and just throw it out, right? One of those cases found against the Trump administration. Two of those other cases were still being um, litigated through the appellate process, right? The Supreme Court, out of nowhere, decides to take all three of those cases at once Hmm. and decide this term, this year, before the election, whether or not it's okay for Trump to get rid of DACA, hmm. which again, just they didn't have to do. They could have just let the appellate process play out past the election, and then you know, with the new election, we might get a new president right. who will make the case, make the DACA issue uh, obvious, uh, uh, moot, or we might get a new Congress that's able to pass comprehensive immigration reform. We don't know what's going to happen after the next election, and Roberts is exactly the kind of guy who would see it that way and demure from taking the case. But now that they got Kavanaugh, they can take this case and they can try to, they will most likely, the arch conservatives will most likely try to say that Trump is within his authority um, to end this program. And Roberts ideologically agrees with them. Um, Whether or not he votes his ideology or if he votes rule of law is kind of an issue that we will see Roberts facing again and again and again this year. Interesting juxtaposition, ideology or rule of law. Very interesting. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't know, including me, much about how the Supreme Court functions. And taking, just keeping on the uh, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, as you say, they didn't have to take this. Uh, But as you say, the only reason for ending DACA is cruelty. That's a really strong accusation. Why do you say that in... What about the questions to the court relative to Trump's desire to cancel the program? And, you know, I could, we all know Trump loves cruelty. I mean, he just drools at cruelty, basically. Uh, and uh, it's impossible to insult the man because he's just so low. That's just my opinion, of course. But ending it is cruelty. What, what The Supreme Court? Cruelty? What? Because there's no reason for it, right? There's no reason to end the program. One of the one of the standards of review, one of the one of the legal jargon phrases that we use a lot, um, and that has flummoxed 
Trump, the Trump administration a lot, is the concept of arbitrary and capricious. Uh -huh. What that means, quite simply, is that the president can do pretty much whatever he wants as long as he has a good reason for doing it, right? Sorry, I said good reason. doesn't even necessarily have to be a good reason, just a kind of a, a, a recognizable, valid legal reason for doing something, and the president can pretty much do it. The DACA decision to overturn DACA by executive order, since it was only instituted by executive order, is normal is kind of well within the president's scope of power as long as he has a valid legal reason for ending the program. What are Trump's reasons for ending DACA? Well, he told us, he it's told me. us, he stood up, he rode down the escalator and told us that oh, Mexicans right. were rapists and criminals. That's his actual reason for wanting to end DACA. Now, that is not a valid legal reason to end any program. You can't just change the law on your whim, right? You have to have a real reason for doing that. So yeah. he says Mexicans are criminals and rapists. That's not a valid legal reason, right? So now his lawyer has got to work. They got to they got to come up with something, some kind of. Oh well, now they so they have to come up with some reason. So now one of their reasons is well, DACA was illegal when Obama uh, uh, instituted it. Unfortunately, that's not a valid reason because the Republicans already tried to get the Supreme Court to rule DACA an illegal executive order, and the Supreme Court said, no, it's not illegal. So you can't kind of, you can't, you don't, you'll get, you don't get two bites at that apple. Saying that DACA is illegal is not true, according to the Supreme Court itself, so that cannot exist as a valid legal reason. The third reason they've thrown up, and this is the one that you hear most on the news, or at least if you listen to conservative news, like on Breitbart, it's this argument that because DACA exists, it creates a perverse incentive for immigrants to illegally come into the country with their children because they will know that their children will get amnesty or whatever you want to call it if they somehow make it across the border. Now, that could be a valid legal reason if there was one shred of evidence that that is what happened. Unfortunately for the Trump administration and for Republicans who desperately want to advance this kind of bigotry, there is no evidence that that happens. There is no evidence that a woman in Guatemala with a two-month-old decides to walk up the continent over rivers, through the hills, to grandmother's house we go. There's no evidence that she does that because of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Okay, so his, his stated reason is not backed up by ev any evidence. So that, that's, why we, that's why we're in a situation where, where I can say the only reason for ending the program is Trump's desire to be cruel to these particular immigrants. And again, that is his stated on the camera, on the Twitter's reason for doing it. He just can't say that in court. So they're trying to come up with all of these other suggestions that don't bear out in the facts. And which brings us back to the beginning. You know, elections have consequences. And when people uh, didn't vote for Hillary and, and Trump got in, then his, his, his love of cruelty transfers down to other departments. I mean, the, the Republicans are their main goal is to fill the courts with people who will carry out uh, Trump's and the far right wing's uh, agenda. It's it's just it's appalling. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Show is keeping democracy alive. It requires participation, folks. Our guest today is Ellie Mistel, who is executive uh, editor of Above the Law, a website that covers the legal industry. 
And his article in The Nation is, Supreme Court is back in session and cruelty is on the docket. Unbelievable. Now, Sershi Orari, I hope I pronounced that right. I probably didn't. Uh, Sershi Orari is the Latin word of which very few of us are at all familiar. But it's the key to the workings of this high court. You write that voting to grant cert, we'll call it that, on a case uh, is itself an indication of bias. Could you unravel that? Please explain that. Sure, and like, I'm, by the way, I can't pronounce it either. I always just go with Grant Cert because sure. I I took French, not Latin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, the as I said before, it only takes four votes to Grant Cert. So it only takes four votes on the court um, for the court to agree to hear a case. Right. And so one of the ways that you see the real bias of this you know, particular uh, conservative block of uh, Supreme Court justices that we have is in the cases and the issues that are presented in the cases themselves, right? As we already explained, docket doesn't have to be here. It's just here to placate Trump. Another really good example of this term um, is this very kind of weird and insular gun case coming out of New York. Um, so it's uh, the, the the issue is that New York had a had a you know New York City has very strict gun licensing laws, um, and so the permit that they gave you in New York, you was only good to carry your gun from your home to an approved New York City shooting range, right? So because of the way that the permits worked or whatever, it kind of wasn't working for people who wanted to take their guns that they have in the city and take it to their second house out on Long Island or upstate, the permit didn't work for that. So they sued. This is, I mean, whatever. Why, why the, the people who can afford two houses but only one gun, I just, I don't understand them, but okay, we live in a pluralistic society. Fine. So this was a problem. They sued New York, understanding that, that the courts are conservative and they might do, who knows what the courts would do, New York actually changed the law. They changed the law so that these people could take their gun and go upstate and be fine um, um, in response to this lawsuit, right? So then, after changing the law, they simply asked the Supreme Court to kick the case. To In the legal world, we call it moot. It's, it's, there's no longer an actual issue here. You were suing for this law. This law no longer, no longer exists. We no longer have to have this lawsuit, right? So New York, after changing the law, asked for the lawsuit to be dismissed. And the Supreme Court said no, which is shocking. <laughs> so what the Supreme Court, again, armed with the arch-conservatives, what they have decided to do, they have decided to grant cert to hear this challenge of the lawsuit, um, even though the law no longer exists, just so, potentially, they can say that laws like this can't exist, and therefore further deregulate gun uh, ownership across the nation based on a New York law that no longer exists. That is a shot across the bow at anybody talking about gun reform, right? Like, that is the Supreme Court doing all of its can- all it can reasonably to tell people, do not bring gun regulations up in here. We will not go for them, right? So you hear, you know, it's debate season, Democratic primary season. You hear all these Democrats talking about gun laws um, and gun regulations. Man, the Supreme Court's sitting right there, and it's basically telling the Democrats, you shall not pass. We will not let you do this. Um, so yeah, if you, if you're if you're not if you're not kind of concerned, uh, you said you said in your open 
so correctly um, that elections matter. And if and if you if you don't get that, if you don't get how anything you want to do in this country cannot happen unless you have control of the courts. And that means voting for people who will give you control of the courts, not just at the presidential level, but up and down the ticket so that the Mitch McConnells and the Merrick Garlands of the world can't happen. Wow. And of course, you know, we're talking about the Supreme Court and their new uh, uh, focus on uh, implementing cruelty. But it's been I've heard that President Trump with his enablers have filled the courts with more judges than it's like without precedent, really, that they've been doing that up and down all the federal courts. And that matters a lot for people's rights. What? Oh, yeah. A previous Nation article I wrote was, was really focused on the entire Trump-McConnell takeover of the courts, not just the Supreme Court, but all up and down the federal branch. Donald Trump has, I mean, the numbers when I wrote it were like, he's put out 123 circuit court justices, which is a record for that amount of time that he's been in office. That number is now old. I don't know what the new, it's like 145 now. Like he keeps doing, it's the only thing the Senate does anymore is to confirm, you know, judges, because they don't pass any legislation. Um, he's, he's been able to fill the courts so effectively um, for two reasons. One is because Mitch McConnell is the emperor behind the throne, right? Yes. Like, okay. Mitch McConnell was so successful at blocking Barack Obama nominees yes. that, you know, everybody remembers Merrick Garland, but right. Merrick Garland was the capstone, not the start of the process, right? McConnell blocked Obama nominees consistently from 2014 through 2016, to say nothing of really slowed down the process even when he was in the minority before 2014, so that there were a record number of judicial openings when Trump took office, right? So he just, so to start, Trump had more to work with, right? And then the only thing, as I said, the Senate has really been kind of aggressive about doing quickly has been nominating these, has been confirming these conservative justices. Um, There are lots of outside interest groups. Many people have heard of the Federalist Society or the Heritage Foundation. They have a deep bench of, of, they have conservatives growing on trees just waiting to be slotted in to an open appointment. So the entire kind of judicial industrial complex has been working really efficiently for Republicans to the point that they have pretty much established control over the entire third branch of government to go along with their control of the first branch, the legislature, and the second branch, the executive. Um, it's, it's, they are close to total victory on the courts, and the Democrats still aren't in the game. Oh, well, that's certainly uplifting. My, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to be realistic here, and it's... it's uh... I mean, presidential elections that we, you know, we got one coming up there. I mean, it's been going on since uh, November 2016, and for good reason. It's frankly far worse than I even imagined. And that's because, I mean, they're taking over the courts, and they're supposed to be kind of a check and balance on the other branches. But, uh, yeah, it's it's really amazing. You remember, the courts have been, uh, people forget just how resistant the courts have been to Trump generally. I mean, while, while the media, I think, for the most part, has played, uh, Trump has played like a fiddle and just gotten the media to parrot whatever he wants yeah. the media to be talking about, while Congress, especially Republicans in Congress and Republicans in, in the Senate, have just abandoned their pride 
um, in slavish devotion to Trump, and while he has exiled all of the adults from the room in the executive branch and surrounded himself with corrupt yes-men, it has been the courts that have stood most strongly against Trump. Um, there was an article in the Washington Post about a year ago now, I forget exactly when, maybe a year and a half ago, um, that just kind of went through... Um, the, the administration's court battles and found that Trump has lost in court at an almost historic rate for a presidential administration. Again, the standard for review for a president is so deferential. Arbitrary and capricious yeah. is such a deferential standard. It's just, just give me a reason. Just doesn't have, just give me an of reason, sir. And he keeps failing. He has been he has been beaten in court more than any other modern president, right? And that's shocking when you think about what this country could look like if Trump had better lawyers. I mean, good lord. But um, so the courts have generally been resistant to Trump's onslaught on the rest of the country. But that will change if these if he gets another four years and he's able to appoint even more justices, right? Um, that. That's been their goal, and they're winning. It's been their goal since. I mean, you could argue that this has been the conservative goal since um, Roe v. Wade and Miranda came out in the seventies, right? Like since then, they have realized that in order to push forward the Republican agenda, they need Republican judges, and they have found them, they have incubated them, they have groomed them, they have promoted them, and now, as you say in your opening, now we are living in a time of consequences where these judges are finally able to wield power and kind of radically redefine what we think of as America and an American democracy. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, there, I mean, one of the cases that people, uh, it, you know, the general public thinks about, I think, with regard to the Supreme Court is, as you just mentioned, Roe v. Wade, uh, reproductive rights that have been uh, precedent since 1973. They, the court has, you know, there have been various tests through the years, and my sense is that the court has remained relatively true to legal precedent relative to reproductive rights. And, and you suggest that this new court may overrule its own prior decisions and precedents on abortion rights. Uh, yep. Tell us about and, this. And, and they're, they're, that's how bold they are now. So the case that's going to come up this term um, is a case called June Medical Services versus G. It is a issue, and I'm sure if your listeners have been paying attention, they've heard about these things that we call trap laws, targeted reproductive, um, uh, targeted laws against reproduction, right? Um, what, what the conservatives have done in the various states that are willing, the red states, is to not attack abortion facially, not just straight-up outlaw a woman's right to choose. I mean, they're doing that now, but that's relatively recent. What they've been doing for most of the decade is to try to cut off access to abortion doctors, right? So, yeah, you totally have a right to abortion. Good luck finding a doctor who can do it, right? One of their key ways of doing that is to say that a doctor who provides abortion has to have admitting privileges at a local, quote-unquote, nearby hospital, they found that when they put in this law, you know, the abortion, the amount of people who can provide abortion services goes down to almost nil, right? right? right. So in 2016, which is not that long ago, one of these laws was challenged in Texas, and the Supreme Court, with Anthony Kennedy in the majority and John Roberts dissenting, um, ruled that those kinds of laws were unconstitutional. 
all right, that was 2016. In 2018, just after Kavanaugh gets nominated, I will have you know, Louisiana passes basically the same law, basically the same law that the Supreme Court overruled in Texas in 2016. Louisiana passes the same law. It gets sued. It gets appealed. And the Fifth Circuit, knowing that Kavanaugh is on the court now, is like, yeah, no, we think this law is fine. <laughs> People are like, what? You just, the court, what are you talking about? And then the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. Again, they could have just, they're just they could have just said, no, that's stupid. We just ruled on this. Goodbye. But no, they agreed to hear the case, which suggests that they are at least contemplating, at least open to the possibility of overturning a critical abortion rights decision that they ruled on in 2016, they're willing to overturn it in 2020. Wow. It was, it's just, and this is, this is in the context of Susan Collins saying on the Senate floor, oh, Brett Kavanaugh respects precedent. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Nobody believed that. Um, and this is the proof that, that anybody who did believe that was a fool. Of course, Brett Kavanaugh doesn't respect precedent, and if they're willing to overturn a precedent as recent as 2016, mm. you can imagine what they think about precedents from 1973. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's well, what about that's on the that's on the table now. Uh, this year, this could be happening. Probably will be happening this year. Absolutely appalling, and I think a lot of people didn't think about that. Now, what about something else we've a lot of us have come to take for granted. I mean, life was tough for LGBTQ people for a long time. Finally, the courts said, yeah, if you can marry the person you love, as long as it's an adult, you know, you can do that, an adult human being. Now, you write that the future of these now-established rights, quote, hinges on the court's interpretation of Title Seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The point of Title Seven was to end employment discrimination. Could it be that, as you say, Title Seven explicitly does not prohibit administ- uh, discrimination against the LGBTQ community? What is the right? I mean, this argument? is a fight that liberals have with conservatives, and it's a new fight, but it's it's a fight that we have to have now because of the conservative takeover of the courts. Title Seven says that you cannot discriminate against a person because of race, color, or sex on the basis of race, color, ethnicity, religion, or sex, right? So what does sex mean? Now, I, now liberals will say sex clearly refers to sexual orientation as well. Conservatives will say, well, it doesn't say sexual orientation, it just says sex. Um, I find the conservative reading of that word, of that, of that statute, to be willfully ignorant, right? If I, if you are my employee and you're a guy and I say you can have sex with a woman, okay. But if I tell a woman who is also my employee, you cannot have sex with a woman. Well, then I am discriminating against my female employee on the basis of her sex. Not on the basis of her choice, on the basis of her sex. Because if a man can have sex with a woman, but a woman can't have sex with a woman, then you are discriminating on the basis of sex. Conservatives don't see that because conservatives do not want to allow for LGBTQ rights to exist at all. So they are looking at three cases this term, two of them directly on point to this issue about whether or not you are even allowed to sue your employer for wrongful termination if your employer explicitly fires you because you are gay. Now that is a thing that has been viewed as clearly against 
the, the Civil Rights Acts of 1974 for at least 30 years. There was a case called PricewaterhouseCoopers um, v. Allison. Um, Allison might have been her first name, actually. Um, I'm blanking on the last name. Uh, the, the Pricewaterhouse case um, ruled that you could not discriminate a person uh, against a person based on sexual stereotypes. There was a case where Pricewaterhouse passed over a woman for promotion because she didn't act ladylike. And people are like, what? <laughs> are you kidding? And the court ruled, clearly, that is within the scope of, of Title VII, of, of our anti-discrimination laws, right? And then it follows from that, well, if you can't dis- uh, fire a woman for being unladylike, then you certainly can't fire a woman for having sex with other women. Like, that, that, would, be, that would be absurdist um, to have a law that prevented one but not the other, Right. Um, so for at least 30 years, we have interpreted the Civil Rights Act as to include protections for LGBTQ uh, people. Now, the states are different. Remember, like, I think I saw online, something like 26 states specifically allow you to fire people because they're gay um, at the state level. Really? But we got to remember how this works. So, okay, let's say your company, you know, in Indiana or wherever, because I'm assuming Indiana is one of those states. I'm, yeah. Apologize, Hoosiers, if I'm wrong. No, doubt. Um, I don't think I am. No. <laughs> um, so like, Indiana fires you because you're gay. Well, sure, maybe you don't have a claim of action under state law, but the next thing you do is sue an, under federal law. Of course. And that means that Indiana, the the state agency or or the company in Indiana, uh, can't fire you um, because of your sexual orientation. So the court is looking to upend all of that this term um, by redefining the Civil Rights Act to only include discrimination against um, women and uh, or based on gender and not include discrimination based on sexual stereotype. And then there's the third case, which kind of really goes into transgender issues. Um, a woman at a funeral home was fired explicitly um, because she came out as a woman and started wearing uh, a, trans, a trans woman, came out as a woman and started wearing women's clothes to work at the funeral home. And the funeral home owner was like, Get out of here. You're spooking the customers. Um, which is illegal discrimination under any, I think, reasonable reading of the word discrimination on the basis of sex. Certainly, if you're discriminating against the kind of clothes I wear based on the sex that is on my birth certificate, that is discrimination based on the basis of sex. Again, the conservatives might well try to overturn that um, and, and basically make it legal at the federal level to fire people simply because of who they are or what they wear to the job. Absolutely amazing. I, I, I just, it's so hard to, to believe that, and but it's it's true, and it goes along with the whole uh, theme of cruelty here. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift, folks. Our, our guest today is uh, uh, Ellie Mistel, who has... Uh, Oh, he's executive director of Above the Law. He, he knows a lot about uh, the law. He's a legal editor of uh, WNYC's More Perfect. Uh, and we're talking about the Supreme Court and cruelty being on the docket. So is it, if, I mean, I know gay people who are married. It, the world has gone on quite nicely. You know, it hasn't upset anything. W- what would happen to them? Would their rights be suddenly taken away? I, I have a hard time believing that. It couldn't go that far. Could it? I mean, it's weird, right? Like, you could, it doesn't look like they have any appetite, the conservatives have any appetite to overrule gay marriage just yet. 
But sure, it's kind of like saying, yeah, you can be married, but if you bring a picture of your husband, if you're a guy and you bring uh, a picture of your husband into work, I can fire you, which is ridiculous, right? Like, I have pictures of my wife at work. I have pictures of my kids at work. Nobody bats an eye, except, you know, why are they wearing Spider-Man costumes as opposed to Iron Man costumes? <laughs> so why, why should I not be allowed to put a picture of my spouse at work you know, on my desk at work, just because my spouse happens to be the same sex that I am. Um, if the Supreme Court rules in this way, we could well be in a situation where people are passed or are passed over for promotion mm-hmm. or fired outright simply because they come out as gay to their employers. Mm-hmm. Now, I think in in practical terms, the the people I really worry about are not kind of like your corporate drones, right? Like if you're working for if you're working for Credit Suisse. And you're making, you know, the bank millions of dollars. I don't think Credit Suisse is ultimately going to care um, if you uh, about your marriage. I mean, some of them will, but like ultimately, green green wins a lot in this country, right? But imagine if you're a school teacher. I mean, we've already seen this. Uh, we've already seen attempts at this, right? Where parents try to get the teacher at their public school. So this is a state agency try to get the teacher at their public school fired simply because the teacher happens to have a boyfriend and he's a man. Or simply because she happens to have a girlfriend and she's a woman. <laughs> or because she comes out as a trans woman or he comes out as a trans man, right? Parents will try to do this. And if the Republicans have their way, they will be allowed to do this. Mm. And the state, the government, the, the allegedly right. secular government, will be empowered to fire people from a school teacher position or a lifeguard position or, you know, a, a, a school librarian simply because of their sexual orientation. And that is such a ridiculous rollback of gay rights that it's hard to kind of fathom, but it is exactly what the conservatives want, right? right. On, on, uh, on, on an even more, I think, personal level, like, you got to think about how at risk gay and trans teenagers are right like they're all, like we already know their suicide rates are high their homicide rates are in or just there's an epidemic of homicides against trans people especially trans people of color so you can imagine you know a teenager in a kind of reddish state you know uh, getting fired from his or her pizza delivery job because of their orientation or because of their gender identification. And not only is that a humiliating experience for a teen that might be kind of struggling already, it also humiliates them and embarrasses them in front of their community. You know, maybe the employer figured out they were gay before, you know, the local football team did. What happens when the football team finds out? Right? Like, so, so just allowing the state to take these kinds of actions against this vulnerable community, um, to me, it goes a lot beyond kind of right-left political philosophy. Um, and, and it is one of the reasons why I use the word cruelty in my piece. Um, it goes, to me, very deeply into simply how we're going to treat each other and how we're going to treat our children. And the conservative viewpoint is we are going to treat them horribly. We are going to treat them badly. We are going to put their lives at risk to advance our traditional conservative philosophy. Mm. 
It's certainly not conserving traditions of the Constitution. They call themselves conservative, I know. Well, this show is coming to listeners from New Hampshire, where after a 20-year effort, we finally ended the death penalty, overruled the governor's veto of it, joining 19 other states. What's happening on the Supreme Court relative to what many see as cruel and unusual punishment, which is the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution? It's not allowed, cruel and unusual punishment. Tell us about what is on the docket regarding the death penalty and where the majority in the court is likely to come down. What gives you reason to say the Supreme Court justices seem annoyed by technicalities that have the effect of keeping people alive? Yeah, so, I mean, New Hampshire is a great example, right? New New Hampshire is an example of the fact that our society is moving slowly and with great effort but slowly away from the death penalty, right? Um, I believe that the death penalty reached its highest approval rating in the Gallup polling in, like, 1994, where it was, like, 80% of Americans supported the death penalty, which is just shocking to me. Um, I was alive in 1984. I didn't realize that so many people were barbarians that I was living with. But... By 2018, that number had fallen to 49%. 2018 is the first time Gallup reported a less than half support for the death penalty. So as a people, we are moving in one direction about the death penalty. But as a legal society, the conservatives are moving in the complete opposite direction. They are going pro-death in a much harder and crueler way than we have ever seen before, and that's juxtaposed against the country trying to go in the, uh, in the in the different direction, right? So one of the things that we've seen recently with the courts is a, a true, and you and I'm I'm using the word derisive based on like their writing styles. Samuel Alito, who's one of the justices who writes like this, generally writes like he just smelled a fart. I mean, like you can see his face scrunched as he's like writing his opinions. He he writes in a very kind of kind of cold and dismissive manner to begin with. But certainly when he's talking about the death penalty, one of the things that has really been a bee in Alito's bonnet is the fact that every uh, uh, death capital case gets appealed, every case gets appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, and lawyers try every, you know, death penalty lawyers, death penalty, uh, uh, anti-death penalty advocates, they will try every trick in the book. They will throw anything credible, uncredible, they will try every legal trick um, to try to keep their clients alive for a little bit longer. A lot of these people are still, um, uh, a lot of these people on death row are still advocating their innocence, um, and they're try- And these lawyers think that if they can just delay the game, maybe DNA evidence will emerge that will exonerate their clients. That does happen. I mean, we know that the Innocence Project has exonerated thousands of people off of death row. So that's not a not- That's not a nothing thought. Um, I said thousands. I meant hundreds. Uh, so so yeah. So they try these tricks to keep their clients alive. And Alito hates them. They thinks they're all disingenuous. They thinks that we should just come on. Let's kill people. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. We have a system. We have schedules to maintain. Um, and he writes like that. And the conservatives seem to agree with that. So this this term, well, last term was really the one where where I, I read what I thought was the cruelest death penalty uh, conservative opinion that I've ever read. Um, it was authored by Neil Gorsuch. It was a case called uh, Bucklew versus Persife. 
Um, and the issue was that whatever Missouri, I think it was, whatever their man- manner of killing people with lethal injection was going to be like super painful for this one death row inmate because he had some kind of like skin allergy or something. I don't really, I don't know the science on it, but like all the scientists agreed it was going to be amazingly painful um, for this particular inmate to be executed in the particular way that Missouri wanted to execute him. And Neil Gorsuch said, whatever, said that the Eighth Amendment does not include a right to a painless death. I mean, the word cruel is right in the damn amendment, and he writes this, and he thinks this, right? That's how the court goes. They have read cruel and unusual punishment almost out of the Constitution, so it doesn't mean anything. I don't know anymore what would strike a Republican judge as cruel, and I certainly don't know what would strike them as unusual anymore. Um, and this term, uh, they've got a couple more death penalty cases. Um, they're going to do the same thing. There's a case uh, about whether or not you can execute an insane person. Right. I mean, we've stopped executing insane people in, like, you know, the 1900s. But the Supreme Court might well say that it's totally uh, okay to execute people who are clinically um, sure. deranged uh, uh, and don't have full control over their actions, uh, that would be new. I mean, I guess it would be old if we think about it from, like, Mm -hmm. the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, they killed Don Quixote, right? So, like, I guess I can't call it new, but it would be different. (laughs) Um, And then in another case, uh, there's there's a guy who's who's arguing a technicality that um, that he was sentenced um, by a judge to death when he is entitled to being sentenced by a jury to death, if that's going to be the case. And he's arguing that that's because the law has changed. Um, like in 2000, you know, he committed his crimes in 1991. In 2002, they changed the law. He wants to go to the 2002 standard. The state is arguing that no, because he committed his crimes in 1991, he deserves the 1991 standard, which allows them to execute him without even talking to a jury. Um, and I feel like that's the kind of technicality that Alito will get angry about and say, no, of course we should just execute the guy like we would have in 1991. Why are we even here? And kill him. I mean, that's what they do. So it's uh, well, the, Sam- the, only, the only positive story here is that... We are moving in the right direction, state yes. by state, state by state. state yes. We're moving in the right direction, um, and I, 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 whereas some of these issues, the liberals are, that's what I'm looking for. The liberals are not as liberal as I would be on some of these issues. So, like, they're not like the conservatives, but they're not the kind of hard left counterpoint to the conservatives. Increasingly, on death penalty issues, the liberals are. Stephen Breyer, who is one of the more conservative, probably the most conservative liberal justice on the bench. I mean, he, he votes with the progressives, but I mean, like, you, you got to drag him there a yeah. lot. Um, Stephen Breyer is openly asking, almost, um, for a case that would allow them to overturn the death penalty. The death penalty is a battle that progressives and criminal justice reformers are losing, but it's not a battle that is lost, um, because ultimately it looks like the people in the states are on our side on this one. For those who, again, may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Ellie Mistel about his piece in The Nation. Supreme Court, back in session, cruelty is on the docket. So many cases, examples of cruelty. What about the old American tradition of the right to practice racism? Tell us about the, the crucial interpretation of the phrase, 
but for cause. How might a decision by this court make it easier to dismiss racial discrimination lawsuits? Most people, when they talk about the Civil Rights Act, are talking about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's the right. Martin Luther King, Lyndon Johnson, we're going to make society better act, right? <laughs> There's an earl- earlier Civil Rights Act that was ma- passed in 1866. If you know your history, 1866 was kind of a big year after the Civil War, and we tried to be like, oh, maybe racism shouldn't be a thing that we do anymore. <laughs> um, so there was a Civil Rights Act passed in 1866, and that act said, among other things, that Basically, black people had the right to sue. This was new. At the time, (laughs) you know, even if you were a free uh, African-American living in the North, you didn't have the right to sue white people. Are you kidding me? That would be crazy to talk. So, So in 1856, after the war, they federally passed a law that said if you were African-American, you had the right to sue, and more specifically, you had the right to sue for discrimination that was made against you because of your race or ethnicity. It is actually a much broader standard than um, the 19 civil rights, 1964 Civil Rights Act and Title VII, like we were talking about with uh, the LGBTQ community. This is just a straight-up, if you are ethnically or racially discriminated against, um, the courts will hear that lawsuit. Of course, the Republicans would now like to change that. Uh, <laughs> I guess black people living just after the Civil War had it a little bit too easy when it came to suing the white man. So instead, uh, the courts argue that we should interpret that 1866 law not as a right to sue uh, uh, because racism was one of the, quote, motivating factors in your dispute. You should only have the right to sue if racism was the but-for cause of the reason of your dispute. Now, the difference between motivating factors and but-for is a little bit legal jargon-y, but I think most people can understand it, right? Like, lots of reasons. You know, I, 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 I don't get, you know, let's say I'm going for, for American Idol, and I don't get, I don't, I don't make it to the final, you know, showdown. Lots of reasons could be motivating factors, right? I can't sing very well. That might be a big reason why I didn't make it on American Idol, right? Um, I don't dance particularly well. That might be a reason, right? But if Simon Cowell says, also, I hate black people, well, I should probably be able to sue, right? He could say, I don't think you can sing, I don't think you can dance, and I hate black people. The hating black people should be enough to allow me to sue Simon for not promoting me on American Idol. The conservatives say no. The conservatives would say that racism was only a motivating factor of me not getting that position, not the but-for cause, not the final and only reason why I didn't get the job or the promotion or the opportunity. The problem with that standard, the one the conservatives want, is that racism just doesn't work that way. It is so rare that a racist person who is being racist to you on purpose says out loud, I am not doing this because I hate your race. Like, they just, that's just not how it works. That's just not how it works. Um, And so holding uh, the standard, holding, changing the standard so that uh, people who have been racially discriminated against have to make race the but-for cause. Remember, not to win the lawsuit, to be allowed to bring the lawsuit. That, That would be a radical change in our laws that we've had since 1866 and would all but end the concept of suing 
an employer over racial discrimination outside of Title VII. It would just it would just end it because there's going to be almost no situation where the uh, the person who is accused of misconduct will have said the only reason why I am doing this misconduct is because of the person's race. White people aren't, aren't that dumb. I mean, come on. Well, some of us are, but not that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, that's the thing, right? You shouldn't have to sound like Donald Trump, right? You shouldn't have to wait. You shouldn't have to sound like Donald Trump for me to be able to call you a bigot, right? Like, there's got to be some level below Donald Trump, who is, like, obvious, um, where I can still successfully bring a lawsuit and just put it in front of a jury. Again, I, I emphasize that we're just talking about the right to sue yes. because I think, it's, I think it's hard for people sometimes to understand the delta there, right? Winning a lawsuit is its own sure. issue, right. right? Just having the right to sue, having the right to what the lawyers call discovery, that's the right to gather evidence about your claim. That is such a basic funk part of our society that taking it away um, before people can even gra- gather evidence, just just strikes me as insane. But it's what the conservatives want to do, and they probably have the votes to do it. Unbelievable. Oh, boy. Well, of course, there's an election coming up. But in the meantime, you brought up something that I had not been familiar with, something called the Administrative Procedure Act. America's founders intended there to be a functioning system of checks and balances on government. Is this Administrative Procedure Act functioning as intended, or is, is this uh, fallen by the wayside? No, I mean, this is, Administrative Procedure Act is where I get the language arbitrary and capricious, right, that we were talking about earlier. And I gotta say, for the most part, it has held up. And for the most part, it has held up. Um, I, I, again, emphasize, it is such a deferential standard. The president really should be able to get away with almost anything. And the Administrative Procedure Act simply says that if you're going to change the law, any law, for any reason, you have to state your reason, you have to have that reason be legally valid, and it can't be a lie. Uh, Trump lost the census case, right? Um, they wanted to add a citizenship, uh, citizenship question to the census. Robert said, no, you can't do that. Why did he lose that case? Well, technically, he lost it on the Administrative Procedures Act. He lost it for being arbitrary and capricious. Uh-huh. What really happened was that the Trump administration was arguing that it wanted to add the citizenship question to more accurately count you know, Latinos. This is a clear lie. That's clearly not why they wanted to add the question. They wanted to add the question to dissuade Latinos from filling out the census, not to count them more accurately. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just pissing in your ear and telling people it's raining, right? <laughs> Roberts was about to go along with the Republican reason. He was about to let the lie pass as law until people might remember, they found all these files on a dead man's hard drive. The Republican king of gerrymandering died. His daughter got a hold of his computer and, so, and found all of these kind of crazy uh, racist things about the real reason why Republicans do some of these things from one of their head gerrymanders, including specifically on the citizenship question, they found documents where they said specifically that the reason to add the citizenship question was to dissuade non-white, was to enhance the power of white voters by dissuading non-whites from filling out the census. They said it in print, and it is that late release of the document that I believe made Roberts kind of unable to keep up the facade, right? Mm. He had to 
acknowledge that the reason that he was given was a lie and not the real reason why the president wanted to do something. Otherwise, he would have gone along with it. And remember, four of the conservative justices went along with the president anyway, despite that evidence, right? Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Alito Thomas, they were all like, screw it. That is the Administrative Procedures Act. That is Roberts saying at the end of all need, yes, your reason has to be valid and has to be true, and your reason is neither. Now, we don't know what Roberts will do going forward with that act, but we do know that generally the district courts, the lower courts, have upheld the spirit of that act. One final thing, I mean, Franklin Roosevelt, who was pretty good in most things, he had a hard time with the Supreme Court relative to his economic initiatives. He sought to add members. They called it court packing at the time. The number nine is not enshrined anywhere in law. What can be done? Is there any way the court might be restructured to benefit our traditional rights and liberties? Yeah, I'm a big fan of court packing. I'm open with that. I believe that the first person to change the number of justices on the court was Mitch McConnell. He changed the number from nine to eight That's for true. a year because he could. Well, if you can change it from 9 to 8, I can change it from 9 to 11. In fact, I argue that we should change it from 9 to 19. I don't think that we should do this tit-for-tat court wow. hmm. I, I think we should add 10 That's new crazy. justices so that the Supreme Court is actually able to function more like the lower circuit courts of appeal. People forget. Like the California, the Ninth Circuit, has got like 21 judges on it. The Second Circuit out here in New York has got 19. Nine is not a special number. When you have more judges, I already started off this program talking about how the Supreme Court hears 7,000 appeals and only takes 100 of them. Mm-hmm. That's because there are only nine of them. If you had 19 justices, the Supreme Court would be able to simply take more cases. The way the circuit courts do it is that every case is uh, heard at first by a randomly chosen panel of three judges, right? And then they make a decision, and then only in rare cases is that decision appealed to the entire circuit. It's called en banc when they do that, and then all 21 or 19 or 15 judges Mm. rule on a case, and then it can be appealed to the actual Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court functioned that way, remember how I started. Remember what I was talking about with Kavanaugh and the decision to grant cert. One of the reasons why the conservative bloc grants cert is because they think they can win the case because they know they have five conservative votes. If you had 19 judges, even if you Uh, kept the balance of power the way it was, the way it is right now, so yeah, add five conservative justices and five liberal justices, right? That still gives conservatives the balance of power on the Supreme Court. But when you're taking a case, you don't know which three are going to rule on it. And that alone would change the entire tenor of the court. It would change the entire kind of case brought before the court. If you don't know which three you get, what if you end up with a three-judge panel of Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan? (laughs) Do you really want to bring your wackadoodle gay (laughs) anti-gay rights theory case now? Are you sure? Because you might not win that one. So I think that simply by going to a random wheel of which judges take first crack at the cases would alone make cases kind of less extreme on both sides and more straight down the middle legal. And I think the way you do that is by adding 10 justices. So yeah, I think I'm a huge fan of court packing. But that also requires liberals to, and this is, this is a great place to end it, sure. you know, we've been talking a lot about how elections matter and how voters have to like, care about this. Man, the people in Congress and the people running for president have to care about this. Yes. 
liberals have been slow to get into this game at the very highest levels, at the establishment party leadership levels. We don't like to talk about the Supreme Court because we believe that, well, conservative voters don't like abortion, and conservative voters like gun rights, and they will vote on the Supreme Court, and liberal voters won't. No. Conservative voters vote on the Supreme Court because they've been told for 30 years that they have to vote in the Supreme Court. And our voters, liberal voters, have not been told the same story. So at some point, it's the Democratic leadership that has to do the work of educating the people about what the Supreme Court does and why it is so important. If we are ever going to match the conservatives on the battlefield for this ideological space. Thank you so much. Interesting stuff here. If people want to follow you, uh, Above the Law is the website, and uh, you write on The Nation. And I'm at, at L-E-E-L-I-E-N-Y-C on Twitter. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Bert.